Would you please pray with me? Lord, may the words and the cries of our hearts and the meditations of our minds be glorified by you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. My first car was a 92 Dodge Spirit. Now, for all of you rom-com lovers out there, that is the car that Meg Ryan drives in Sleepless in Seattle. And while Meg's car was white, my Dodge Spirit was red, or at least at some point it had been red. During my time with the Spirit, I love the fact that a future pastor's first car was also called the Spirit. That seems poignant to me. But, but during my time with the Spirit, the paint had largely peeled away from the roof, leaving this rusty red color, which was more rust than red. And the back bumper sticker of the car was plaster. The bunk back, bump, back bumper of the car was plastered with stickers of one pet cause or another, not necessarily because of my desire to be outwardly seen on various issues, but because I needed the sticker, stickers to serve as plaster, covering up the bumps and scrapes I had made during my early years of driving, running into this or backing into that. I loved Ruby, as she was affectionately named. And during college, Ruby would faithfully drive me every summer from my college in North Carolina out to Wyoming, where I worked for the Bureau of Land Management. In a day or two, well, more like two or three, I would drive cross-country, always fretting that the malfunctioning gas gauge would leave me stranded on the side of the road hundreds of miles from some forgotten town. It's never happened, I said to wanderers, until it did. And as I drove late one night, the needle plummeted from half full to empty within a matter of minutes, and I began to panic. The next exit was over 80 miles away on these pitch black roads where the stars were so close that they felt like they were coming through your windshield. I had no idea what I was going to do, and so I did what I was forced to do. I pulled over, and I took out my purple Motorola flip phone, searching, hoping, praying for some cell service to no avail. This is how horror movies start, I knew. I was terrified that no one would find me. I was terrified that someone would stop, finding this college girl alone in her car. Whatever was to happen, I was afraid. And as I waited in the eerie silence of the night, my fear grew and grew. And as headlights came from afar, my fear grew and grew. I'd grown up in the early 90s, the time of milk carton kids, where strangers were ready to swoop in. And as the lights approached and then slowed, I wondered if this was a friend or a foe. An old, grizzled man, honestly looking like some sort of panhandler from the gold rush with a long beard and dirty overalls, emerged from the blinding lights of his truck. It's a terrible thing to be stranded at night, he said, to which I agreed. 
Are you all alone? I confessed I was, but it seemed like an obvious question. There wasn't really anywhere for someone to be hiding on this open road in this wide open space. Well then, he said, turning from me and going back to his truck. Let me help you, he called over his shoulder. And he returned with a can of gas. People in cities are afraid of strangers, he said. I wondered at this point if he had noticed like the sweating of my hands and the beating of my heart. Did he know that I was one such terrified person? But out here, he went on, we rely on one another. Each of us runs out of gas sooner or later, or our battery dies, or something happens. And even if we don't know each other, we know we need each other. I was speechless. I muttered my thanks, which seemed insufficient, and he waved a hand in reply, got back into his truck, and drove away. I got back into the spirit, and honestly, I locked those manual doors right away, my heart still hammering fast. I'd been so afraid of this man, of the unknown, of the what-could-have-beens. And in this case, at least, I was completely wrong. I had expected a devil, and instead what I met was an angel who had emerged from heavenly headlights. This is the same place where we find the disciples today, locked away in fear, worried that those people might come and lock them up, might call them to trial and crucify them as they'd crucified Christ. This seems rational. Fear, after all, is a survival instinct but it can also paralyze us and harden our hearts. Fear and judgment calls us to do all sorts of things. The door was barred and no one was going anywhere except apparently Thomas, who in the face of fear seemed to be out in the world. And it is in this place of fear that Christ arrives and it is in this place of fear that he speaks of peace. And it is in this face of fear that paralyzes that Jesus speaks of going out into the world, not held captive by our fear, but empowered by God's spirit to be disciples of God's love. A spirit of love that does not judge, but calls us to forgiveness, he says. Calls us to curiosity. This past year, I, like many of you maybe, needed a lift. Everything seemed so dark and heavy. To some friends, I was lamenting over there not being a contemporary to one of my favorite TV shows, Parks and Rec, some sort of feel-good thing to watch, funny, heartfelt, poignant at times. To which they replied, have you watched Ted Lasso? This feel-good TV is the story of an American football coach recruited to coach football, or soccer, in a premier league in England. And as I watched, the gospel lessons woven into Ted poured over me. Lessons of acceptance, love and grace, of transformation and hope, of resilience, all centered around this lovable Kansan coach. Ted is obviously out of his league, bumbling and fumbling along. Ted's gift is not in coaching football, 
but more coaching the players and us in life. Ted is constantly being judged. He's judged by reporters and they, as they interrogate him about his new position on his first day at the job. He's judged by his players who initially find him nothing more than a comical bouffant. He's judged by fans, by those who've hired him. And in one episode, the villainific ex-owner of the team, Ted's coaching, Rupert, cockily challenges Ted to a game of darts where the stakes are so high. Confident that Ted's easygoing, jovial self also has an ineptitude at bar games. <clears throat> you know, Rupert, Ted says as he throws a dart. Guys have underestimated me for my whole life. And for years, I never understood why. It used to really bother me. And then one day, I was driving my little boy to school, and I saw this quote by Walt Whitman, and it was painted on a wall there. It said, be curious, not judgmental. I like that. So I got back in my car, and I'm driving to work, and all of a sudden, it hits me. All them fellas that used to belittle me, they thought they had everything figured out. So they judged everything and they judged everyone. And I realized that their underestimating me, who I was, had nothing to do with it. Because if they were curious, they would have asked a question like, questions like, have you played a lot of darts, Ted? To which I would have answered, yes, sir every Sunday afternoon at the sports bar with my father from age 10 till I was 16 when he passed away. And with that, Ted threw his last dart and it hit the bullseye and cheers erupted. How often do we judge because we think we have it all figured out? Be curious, not judgmental. Thomas just wants what the other disciples have been afforded, the chance to see Christ. Maybe Thomas was skeptical. Maybe he didn't believe it was possible. Maybe he'd run out of hope after the horrors of Good Friday. He could not imagine Easter. He was left wondering what now and where do we go from here? What I love about the interaction between Christ and Thomas is the invitation, the invitation to explore. Christ knows it's natural, it's human nature. We wanna to touch and see, we are curious. I wonder when Christ says, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet come to believe. I wonder, I wonder if Jesus is inviting the Thomas inviting Thomas and the disciples and all of us to cultivate our curiosity, not to make judgments, not to limit and restrict, but to wonder and imagine. Belief, faith, is not about knowing in some scientifically verifiable way. It's not about having the specifics all figured out. Faith is not the absence of doubt. Faith is about that continual engagement, that desire to see and to touch. It's about suspending our desire to jump to some conclusion, especially when those conclusions are grounded in fear and scarcity and anger. 
Faith's about being willing to reach out and touch, to stay curious and wonder. It is about a desire to explore and experience. Doubt is not the opposite of faith, wrote theologian Paul Tillich. It is an element of faith. Or as the great Anne Lamont writes, the opposite of faith is not doubt, but certainty. Certainty is missing the point entirely. Faith includes noticing the mess, the emptiness, the discomfort, and letting it be there until some light returns. So let us not bar the doors of our hearts. As the disciples had done in certainty of what was to come, let us be curious and not jump to judgment. Let us reach out our hands and touch. Let us wonder and explore how the risen Christ was not just then, but is in our midst now. Maybe as an old grizzled man coming from a pickup truck with a gas, can of gas. For friends, he was and is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. Amen.